Hey, it's Allie Kaplan. Before we start the show, just a quick note. I wanted to let you all know this interview was recorded several weeks ago before the coronavirus pandemic. We had to cancel a recording session to finish up our Back to the Classroom segment, so you may notice that it sounds a bit different since it was recorded remotely. But we didn't want to delay getting this out, figured everybody can benefit right now from stories of leadership and collaboration. Take care, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Well, Google Jeff Gao and some of the first things to come up will relate to leadership, his volunteer work, the office culture, being an admired leader. Jeff is CEO of Marco. They're an IT services provider based in St. Cloud. And if you haven't heard of them, well, you've probably worked with them one way or another. They have 60 offices throughout the U.S., more than 35,000 clients nationwide. When Jeff started out at the company 35 years ago, they sold typewriters. Quite a few, actually. Marco did about $8 million in sales back then. Today, they're over $400 million in annual revenue with 1,400 employees. We're so glad to have Jeff here to tell us everything he's learned while growing this enterprise about work culture, changing technology, and perhaps most importantly, leadership. Jeff, thanks for coming down from St. Cloud. Well, thanks for having me. I've been <laughs> yeah. looking forward to it. It's a little chilly day out here today, it is too, a isn't chilly. it? <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, so, Jeff, go back to the early part of your career, just a couple years ago, right? Where did you start out? I know you were in the Air Force. Mm-hmm. And what what did you think you wanted to do after that experience? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. Over the, over the years, I've been in business now for 35 years, and... Um, as well, I was in the Air Force, I had a chance to think about what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. but more importantly, what I didn't want to do. So I knew that I didn't want to work nights and weekends, probably not a good laborer, you know, probably some things that probably wouldn't suit me well. Some I just weren't even smart enough to do. And so, <laughs> and I wanted to make a little money along the way. And so I ended up going into direct sales, you know, business to business direct sales. And, and that suited me well. So that's kind of how I got started. So when I came to Marco, in uh, 1984, our economic engine was typewriters. That's how we that's how we made our money back then. It's a beautiful model. Um, office furniture was what I sold, and office furniture and office supplies were probably one of the biggest parts of the business as well. And of course, today there are no typewriters. There's no office furniture. There's no office supplies. There's no retail. <laughs> but good news is I'm still here, and the company's still here. So we've been resilient together. That's amazing. Yeah. So you were working for another company doing office furniture, and somehow how did you how did you find Marco? Marco, Marco sold office furniture okay. as well as typewriters back then. So okay. we were in we were kind of like what we call an office products company, right? Okay. And 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 at one time, you know, that was a kind of a diverse offering. You know, you would sell more to the same customer would be the theory. But it also diluted things. And uh, so it gave you some diversification, but it also, you know, you lost some focus on that. So were you, are you from St. Cloud? From Little Falls, about thirty miles north of there. Okay. So, yeah. And and Marco's always been based in, in St. Cloud. Marco's been headquartered in St. Cloud since nineteen seventy three. Okay. Um, so was it a company that 
that you knew? I mean, well, were you no, actually, I graduated from the University of North Dakota. So while I was a student there, a senior, I ran into a gentleman by the name of Gary Marsden, who was my longtime boss, and he was part of the MAR of Marco. It was Marsden and Marcourt. So ah. Gary Marsden was an alum from the University of North Dakota, and he happened to be sitting in on a class, a senior level, senior level management class in, uh, in, in 1984, and that's where we connected. Through a through a through a through a senior level class here, a gentleman that was our he was our um, he was uh, the professor, but he also became the dean, Doctor Dennis Elbert, and is still a connection for us today. Hmm. So we have a we have a strong connection back to the University of North Dakota. So you start out in sales, yes, and right away were you thinking to yourself, I'm gonna I'm gonna lead this company one day. You know what happens on that is you when you go into your career, right? You, you you aspire for certain things. And I think, first off, I found I was pretty good at selling stuff. Mm-hmm. I was good at it, right? And I was kind of the go-to person. So people would come to me from time to time for maybe assistance on what they were selling or input on maybe a, a presentation they had. What do you think made you a good salesperson? Um, I think I got okay. You know, I'll often say, you got to get comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think I got comfortable being uncomfortable, meaning... You know, you're you're continuously, you know, maybe not getting yes to everything you ask for. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you get used to that. Um, sometimes it's uncomfortable, you know, to ask for, you know, ask for a commitment. And and sometimes you'd like to think you'd never have customer issues, but you have those too. So as a result, I, I think I got pretty comfortable being uncomfortable and that served me well. And it seemed like the more that you did that, the more experiences you had the more comfortable you got with some of the things other people didn't like to do. Hmm. And so usually, you know, usually, especially if it's good stuff, if you can, you can differentiate yourself by doing things that others maybe don't want to do or uncomfortable doing. So that got okay. So I know you're being modest, but you were, <clears throat> a, a, you were a great sales person. You were kind of quickly became a go-to guy. Did you, did you kind of have the vision? Did you see yourself climbing the ranks? And, and was that a, a goal to get to management? Okay, so I, I liked... The idea of management appealed to me. I think that's got to be part of, um, you know, somebody wants to ascend up the food chain. You mm-hmm. probably have to have that in your DNA that you would like to do that. Now, a lot of people want to do that, but that doesn't necessarily make you good at that. So from a leadership perspective, you know, if you kind of look back there and there's no one back there, you're probably you know, a leader. You don't have any followers, right? <laughs> but my, my first opportunity I had was my boss, Gary Marsden, the founder at that time, um, said, hey, would you like to manage the miscellaneous machine business unit, which is really, really small and insignificant. It was time clocks, paper shredders, and calculators, okay? So wow. it, it really didn't even have a place on our income statement. But the good news was I took that first little job seriously. I really did. And I, you know, rather than say, oh, this is insignificant, why should I do this? It was more like, hey, this is a chance. I better do this. And and I did an okay job at that. And that kind of started getting a little bit more responsibility, a little bit more responsibility. And that's typical, you mm-hmm. know, in leadership when you're first getting started to find out if you can, if you can, in fact, manage something. Right. And, and so that little opportunity in miscellaneous machines is <laughs> insignificant. And I don't think any of those, I don't know if they exist today, those things. I don't well, think people we still have. use shredders. They do. Right? They do. And we have a shredding business actually, but um, it's a little different take on it. But the point was given the opportunity as insignificant as it seemed, I kind of made a big deal out of it and, 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 and tried to do good with that. 
Okay. So at what point did when when did you ascend the the ranks? When did you become CEO of Marco? Well, that was in like let's see that would have been in 2006. Okay. Would have been officially the CEO, I think I was president in 2003. I might be off a year on that, mm-hmm. but we're pretty close. Did you ever think about leaving? Did you ever think about going off and starting your own thing? Yeah. Or did okay. you, what kept you at Marco? Well, well what ha- what keeps you play? What gets you someplace, I suppose, is, is the opportunity. What keeps you there is the culture. Uh, my predecessor did a really good job at building a good culture. It was, it, it was, it was really a, it was a good place to work. It was a fun place to work. Um, and, and I think... That started with, I remember Gary telling me one time, he goes, first year, I'm going to teach you how to sell. Second year, I'm going to teach you how to manage. And the third year, I'll teach you how to run your own business. And if we can't create an environment that you want to be a part of long term, at least you're prepared to go do your thing. Right? Wow. And that was pretty convincing. That was when I was technically interviewing for the job. And, and to this day, that kind of resonates, right? Is if we build a culture that attracts and, keep goods, attracts and keeps good people, then we're doing our job because they will hopefully attract and keep our good customers. And mm-hmm. that sounds really simple, and there's a lot more moving parts than that. But that that along the way, you had opportunities because um, manufacturers, good good ones and brands you've heard, and and um, you know other organizations, companies, etc. You know, we're always people are always looking for good salespeople or potential good leaders or managers. So those opportunities have come up. But you know, I I always really liked the people I worked with. I liked. Um, my partners at one time, you know, business partners. And so do you think about it? Yeah. But it kind of went in the rearview mirror. And once I did that, it was way easier to focus on where you're going rather than getting distracted by, you know, what you could do or maybe what the other opportunities were. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'll never know what they might have played out like, but this was a pretty good gig. So I've been yeah. happy with that. And, yeah. and it kept kept growing. I mean, was the growth steady or, or was there a, a point at which yeah. they just sort of exploded? Well, I think that, I think that, Gary was great at building culture and setting strategy. I think I was really good at growing the business profitably. I, I, I was a catalyst for that. We, we, when I took over early in, in my tenure as CEO and as president, um, you know, there's a group of people that probably thought that horse had already ran, meaning the company, because mm-hmm. at that time it was in the 30 some million, I think it was 38 million or something like that. And was it, I mean, had you moved beyond typewriters at that point? Oh, yeah, yeah. We, we'd, <laughs> we'd diversified. We had a pretty good strategy. The theory was, you know, the typewriter was a good model. It was a piece of hardware, a consumable, and a maintenance agreement. We call that recurring revenue. That was kind of a nice business mm-hmm. model, but it completely went away. And that transformed into the, what would be today, I suppose, the PC or the laptop or our, our technology that we use in our office. But that wasn't as good of a model, you know, because it was kind of project-based, meaning you go sell a bunch of stuff, and then when it gets, you know, and then you parry out and go look for another one. It, was, mm-hmm. it wasn't quite as predictable as the typewriter model that had maintenance attached to it. The other thing that was interesting through that transition from the typewriter to the technology, the PC, is the user wasn't always keeping up with the technology. So the customer satisfaction equation got a little bit tricky because even though the technology worked, the user wasn't quite up to speed on it. So what was easy to do in the typewriter, meaning customer sat, got more difficult with the PC and the applications and the speed and pace in which that changed. Did you ever get nervous at any point like, oh my gosh, you know, technology is evolving. What am I doing at a typewriter company? Like, did you ever think that, that the company wasn't going to survive the evolution of technology? Well, 
Um, th- and that would actually, we thought that and it would have been true, right? So as we transitioned or transformed the company to a technology company, we got out of the office furniture business, got out of the retail business, got out of the office supply business, typewriters went away by itself. When did you do all of that? Was That, that was like- in the, in started, that started in the late nineties and early into the two thousands and then okay. continued on into my tenure. Remember I said I started selling office furniture when I came here and that yeah. became at one time, I suppose it was the biggest part of our business. I actually sold that business after I took over as CEO and I had a lot of friends in that business. And um, if someone would have told me back when I started, you'll actually sell this business unit um, when you're the CEO. I go, yeah, right. Yeah. And so the point was we got out of the stuff that really didn't fit our strategy anymore. And our theory became, and it was a good one, if it doesn't fit our strategy and it's not making money, get rid of it. If it does fit our strategy and it's not making money, we would fix it. Okay, hmm. So anything technology-related that fit our strategy, we would go about fixing it. And there was, it was examples of that. Um, the PC business transition in the networking business, transition to the cloud. And oftentimes we'll talk about from the typewriter to the cloud mm-hmm. and that transformation. And so, yeah, so over that time, sure, you got nervous about it. And, and there were a lot of casualties at that time. A lot of people that sold typewriters aren't sitting here today, you know, right. talking to you about growing a business. And so um, you had to transform into something. And that something became at one time copiers and printer or copiers and printers, you know, was a necessary um, tool in the office still sure. is today. And that had a similar model. It was a piece of hardware, a copier. Mm-hmm. It had a consumable, you know, like a toner and a maintenance agreement on it. So we started to build our business around recurring revenue streams. That proved to be a really good decision. That was a good business. Still a good business. It's just not a growth industry. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, I, I still can't figure out how to use the fancy printers in our office. Yeah, I'm in the business. I don't know either. <laughs> so um, the good news is a lot of people do. And so, and they are continue to be an important tool. We've, we've grown our business into the largest copy and print company in the U.S. And we recognize that that is not a growth industry. So again, we're continuing to transform the business. You know, we will, We I don't think that'll ever go to zero like typewriters did, but we always have to be mindful that as you look out the windshield, you know that's 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 not that's not high growth. So you got to be really comfortable with with change and know that you have a, a a culture that transcends the product that you're selling. The the you know change is great as long as it's happening to somebody else, right? And so, <laughs> invariably though, it's happening to us. Us meaning most people, but some people choose to not participate and maybe ignore it. And that's that's not a good thing for a leader to do. If you say, well, the way we used to do it, I try not to say that because mm-hmm. you got to stay contemporary. And um, um, if you're going to be attracting young people into your organization, you need to keep your business model contemporary and you um, you need to keep your, your – the windshield needs to look good because career paths are really, really important, whether you're 20-something or 30-something or 50-something or 40, whatever. I mean, you, you got to keep the – that that's what keeps that's what helps us attract pe- and keep people sure so you don't want to use as a tagline biggest copier printer you know mm-hmm. company in yeah. in the nation what what do you use what is a what is a, a mission statement that kind of transcends the product we're a growth driven technology services company admired for our people and our performance wow now, did you write that well, we wrote that. I mean, okay. uh, running a business is a team sport, by the way. And so if we play to our strengths and I don't have that many of them and I really don't, no. but I, I haven't, I, I know what they are mm-hmm. and I know what they're not. So the point is back to the technology services piece and being a growth company, when we crafted that vision. How long ago did you craft that? You know, 10 years ago, probably something okay. like that. And, 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 and everybody that comes into our company 
and our customers and even you who haven't mm-hmm. known us, you've known us a long time, but mm-hmm. you didn't know we were going to practice vision, mission, and value statement. But you can, you know, the, we try to keep them simple, things like that, to one sentence. Mm-hmm. So to be a growth-driven technology services company admired for our people and our performance. You'll remember this. Growth-driven. Right. We grow 20% every year. Uh, technology services, that's where we grow. We like our people and we keep score, you know, and um, that, that's our vision. So how do you stay ahead, especially with the, the rate of change in technology, in the, in the kind of products that you deal in? It feels like it's, it's changed a, a lot. How do you stay ahead? How do you know what's next? Sure. So, so what you try to build, and I would recommend this to anybody in any business, is kind of a mutual fund of services. Some of them are going to be, you know, if you look at why, what a mutual fund is, you know, it's got multiple investments under one little umbrella or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. There's probably a right term and I'll get corrected on that. But the point is under umbrella technology services, you got some areas that are natural growth, like cloud services, managed network services. You got some things that are mature, but very profitable, like copiers and printers. You got some things in transitions, like the phone systems. The way we acquired a phone system before is very different than how we acquire a a phone system today and, and that we will tomorrow. Um, so a lot, the, a lot of things, a lot of the business used to be, you would, you would capitalize or budget for a, a widget, a project, a phone system, a big network upgrade, and then you'd depreciate it over a period of time, three to five years or something like that. Today it's per user, you know, and we can thank Netflix and, and, um, and all the different avenues that we Today, you know, we kind of pay a monthly fee or subscription right. services, Spotify, right? Spotify, on and, and on. Right, all those that you can name. And and that that is kind of what's happening. That's the transformation from a, if you will, a you know, a fixed a, a asset acquisition to more the service pay-as-you-go model. And so that by itself, the phone still looks the same. Mm-hmm. It even sounds the same done correctly. But the way the customer acquires it is different. That changes the way we sell. So even the products might not change, but maybe the way that it gets brought to market changes mm-hmm. dramatically. What about the way the workplace <clears throat> is changing? I mean, Marco sure. obviously relies on you're, – you're dealing with offices, with companies. Companies are downsizing more. People are working remotely or co-working. How does that change things for Marco? You know, and that's a good question. That phenomenon has been going on really for a lot of years. And, it, and, and then there's a – then there's the debate about the home worker versus the, you know, the remote worker versus sure. the in-office worker. And we've seen some companies, fairly high profile, that have said, hey, this, the, the home worker doesn't work for us. You know, work from home isn't as productive. C- frankly, we kind of subscribe to the fact that you don't have to work in the corporate office or in the office to be, you know, to be in the office. Mm-hmm. And so we, we agree with the mobile worker. And, um, and what, what's changed are the devices. You know, it used to be you had a phone system that was at your desk and you had a computer that was at your desk and the company owned both of those. Today, you may own your phone system and mm-hmm. it's in the network. You might own your iPad or whatever device you might have for your personal device and that's in our network, right, or the or, our customer's right. network. So what happens on all that security becomes a big deal. So we allow people to, to come into our networks um, because that's how they do their work, right? Well, all of a sudden, what what sounds like a really, really good tool became something that could, you know, cause a, a different issue. So what really happens is all these devices and tools um, collaborating together, playing together, being efficient together, whatever term you want to use. So you bring your own device to work, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you didn't do that before. Not that yeah, long ago. Right. You didn't come in and say, well, I think I'll haul in my phone and my computer. It was already there. You sat down at a desk or an office. So so the dynamics of the workplace have been good for companies like Marco because the IT decision maker is our customer. 
All right. So, Allison, what happens is, is that IT decision maker, they used to be, you know, they'd be responsible for the PCs or the network. Well, today the phone system's hanging on there. The copiers are hanging on there. The printers are hanging on there. That's why I don't know how to use it Right. The AV's hanging on there. The mobile bring your own devices are hanging on there. Security's on there. Um, HVAC is going to be on there. You know, all these things are are coming under the umbrella of the IT department. And Mm -hmm. and the the less they kind of know something about that, the more value we can bring to that relationship. And so that's kind of how we built that portfolio of services too. How do you make sure that your huge and growing team is thinking the way you are and, and is looking out ahead and isn't so mired in what they're doing today? Because you kind of, you have to deal in today and provide the service on today's products, but you have to be thinking about what's next. Well, it's probably me thinking more like they are. So if you, if you check our track record, Fortune Magazine, um, recognized us as, as one of the top 100 places in the U.S. for millennials to work, mm-hmm. you know, to get these young people in. Well, a lot of our people in technology, they use the latest tools. They will they will remind us if we're not contemporary on it. And and so I think if you if you really do pay attention to what your clients are saying, some of your most savvy users. And then, and then the other thing is not be on the bleeding edge. That doesn't work very well. So I'd like to think of us as fast followers. Um, we don't have to be first, but we better be paying attention. And when we do it, we got to do it really well. And so, um, you know, that that's probably looking around corners a little bit, which kind of means participating in your industry, paying attention to your customers, you know, paying attention to your suppliers and manufacturers. But, you know, not just what you're doing, but what are they doing? What are they, what are the, some of the leaders doing in the industry? And then when it comes the right time to execute or implement, um, you, you do it right. Because if you, if you, like when we initiated, oh, let's just say managed services years ago or managed print services years ago, you wanted to do it right, right from the start. You can't say, well, I think if a whole bunch of customers call us, we'll go deliver. It had to be like, we had to build the platform for support first, the investment. Sure. But at least you knew what you were investing in because you'd kind of seen parts of it as a as a as a fast follower. You weren't you didn't have to create it completely on the fly. And I think I think that's helpful. You know, really, if you think about it, sure, some companies, you know, Apple gets credit for being innovative and Amazon for being innovative, and I'd like to think we're innovative. But some of the most innovative things we've done haven't been like we didn't create the iPad or the iPhone like Apple did. But then neither did Amazon. I mean, they, they're shipping you stuff. People have been shipping stuff for a long time. What mm-hmm. they created was the interface and the, 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 the speed in which it happened right. Right, more than anything. Just like us. We used to sell, you know, here's a good example. We used to sell printers at almost no margin, right? I mean, they just, they're a low margin commodity item. The office supply industry sold the, the, um, the toner for it, right? Okay. And then the maintenance, somebody sat on the sideline and waited for it to break. And if it broke, you went out and fixed it. And, and that wasn't, just wasn't a very good model. Yeah. We bundled those three things together and we called it managed print services. And they paid us a, a monthly subscription for that. So that included their hardware, their service, and, their, and, the, and, the, uh, and, the, and the supplies. And so now you have a predictable revenue stream. That's kind of innovative, right, in the way that it was sold, but we didn't invent anything. And so many times if people look closely, whether you're a nonprofit or you're in the financial business, are there things you can bundle together, things you can bring to market differently that the customer wants that maybe can be more profitable and predictable for you too? So those are the kind of things I feel like, you know, have been instrumental in driving some of that growth. How did you get 
to a place where you could feel confident about making those bold changes or, or pivots in your business? Okay, so I think it was Andy Grove that used to run Intel that said only the paranoid survive, something like that, right? <laughs> and so and so you, you made these moves. We even call them bold moves. And, and when we would have our strategy sessions with the people that ran the business and continue to run the business with me, and we say, well, let's, uh, you know, you... you when we did our first acquisition in 2005, we'd never done an acquisition. But we wanted, as part of our growth strategy, to use acquisitions to be a catalyst for that, right? So in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, which isn't too far from a lake home that we have up in Perm, was an office equipment company. And that was our first acquisition in 2005. It was a $1.2 million business and even had a branch in Bemidji. Today, we'll do about $60 million in revenue out of that that, wow. that, that region, right? I even remember telling the owner, Mark, I said, you know, we've never done one of these before, so we'll do our best not to screw up, but we might, you know. And, <laughs> you actually admitted that? Right, well, but, but that's what you have. I think that's important mm-hmm. is when you go into these new areas of uh, with a customer, we, we do the same thing. We try not to overpromise like, hey, if, if, if you become part of our managed services suite, you're never going to have a problem again. You're just count on it. It's like this is going to be a change. So we, we sensitize mm-hmm. whether it's the owner of a company we're buying, a customer we're bringing into our um, uh, into our company. Or, 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 you know, recently we did a we're, we're going we're to announce an acquisition here shortly and we've already done kind of the. Um, we actually, yesterday, we were supposed to fly out, but the weather conditions didn't allow us to fly. For the first time on 46 acquisitions, I didn't go there live mm. to introduce our company to the new employees. And so we did it remotely via video. And I said, okay, we haven't really done it this way before. Now, mind you, we're 46 times into this. And I've been the CEO times. for a long time. Yeah. And so I said, we've never done this before, so we might screw this up, but hang with us. And they laugh like you do right now, uh-huh. but they're going, okay, that just disarms everything. Sure, sure, It sets sure. the baseline to say, this will be okay. They're, they're not, they don't know everything. So once you made that first acquisition, you kind of just you were energized by it? You just kept acquiring after that? It was, um, it was a pretty humble way to do it. I guess, I don't know if humble is the right word, but my point was it wasn't like we were this acquisition machine but what would happen is because when we when we when we took over the company there was a fair amount of debt and so we once we kind of got out of debt and we would save up money this sounds really simple but it's true and we get x amount of money in the bank it usually was millions right we go hey we got x amount in the bank we should let's go buy a company and we'd do that and then we'd integrate it and then Mm -hmm. we'd get the itch and or somebody would call us and so it kind of got like Kind of like you'd kind of run your household. You save it up, you go buy it. You save it up, you go buy it. We weren't using a leverage probably as well as we could early on because we didn't want to risk the company. Remember, we were an employee-owned company. And so we had to be good stewards of that. And people love employee-owned companies if the stock is going which way? North, right? right. So so that, what, the only thing that drives that is profitable growth. And so anyway, um, our, our that acquisition track, it started out pretty simple. And, you know, really, when it, when it got down to it for many years after that, we kept it pretty simple that way. Today, we're well-financed by our partners at, at Norwest Equity Partners. And so we can, you know, we've got more latitude that way to do bigger transactions and, and leverage 
um, a, you know, a, a, a um, an acquisition a little bit. Sure. So let let's talk about about ownership. Who do you answer to? Who 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 advises you? And what does it mean to be employee owned? Okay. So when we first there's there's that's two questions really. One of them is the employee ownership. We mm-hmm. were an employee owned company from 1989 until 2015, and I would probably say it was one of the best employee owned experiences that you know that probably one of the best and for sure in the region. It was really a really a a good journey for a lot how of How did that happen? The founder what, what, left? Typically how those happen, yep. The founder leaves. One of the founders left in order to do a process of buyout. 1989, Dave Marquardt left. We we structured an employee-owned um, component of the business. So 65% at that time was owned by the employees. So way back in 1989. We went to 100% in 2001 when the next founder left. And then I continued on as, as CEO. Did you ever want to own it? Well, you know, in kind of a roundabout way, I still had a stake in it that mm-hmm. would have turned out pretty good. So, well, we <laughs> took that stock. We, you know, that that probably in 01, that was, um, we probably grew that well, hundreds of percents. I mean, it was very successful stock. We were we were about 38 or 40 million at that time. And when we sold the company, um, we were about 215 million, something like that. So we did a lot of stuff in a pretty short period of time. And, and so that ownership, that employee ownership, um, there was a board, and um, and the former the founder, um, along with three other of us, we kept a small board. Um, you know, had the governance on it, and then um, we we did it that way for, you know, from '01 until 2015, and then to be good stewards, um, the company became very attractive, and as the as the as the employee-owned company matured, okay, that that would indicate in the future there was going to be a pretty substantial buyout for mm-hmm. partners to leave because you still have a lot of partners in there. We used to have a lot more of them. And it was going to require a lot of debt. And so in order to keep growing through acquisition, right, we were operating debt-free, um, we would have to have more funding sources. And we learned that, um, it, it, you know, the company was very, very healthy. And uh, so then the ESOP, or the employee-owned company, that that ended in 2015 as a very successful event in St. Cloud, maybe one of the biggest, if not the biggest, financial event in St. Cloud. So, what what does that look like? What what happened in 2015? Well, there were 900 shareholders, I believe, at that time, and we distributed every single nickel back to the owners That's of the amazing. company at that time, and it created a lot of wealth real quickly for for a lot of people. And did a lot of people leave the company? You know, you would think that could happen, right? And 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 that didn't though. And in fact there was you know there were some, I suppose, but in and and it was, the timing was right for them too, but um no, we I thought we did a really good job of retention even after that because a lot of people became millionaires and multimillionaires that day. That's amazing. And some very average. That's got to feel like a really good day at the office. That was a really good day at the office, and and so I want to talk about the next phase. But before we do that, having been through the 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 ESOP and and working for an employee owned company, who do you recommend it? Who who does that work best for? Okay, good. That's a good question, Allison, and it's a really really good option for the right companies. First of all, you need to have competent leadership. And um, and we made that assumption, and, it, and I, I um I, I kind of laugh now because I go, well, we thought we were, and it proved it worked out. <laughs> you great, did okay. Right? We did yeah. all right. So so, but you do have to have competent leadership, and you have to have a business model that you're confident in, and 
the only way an ESOP really works is profitable growth. I mean, you can cut through all the stuff and you can have a great culture and you can have fun and you can be rah-rah and we can talk about, you know, kumbaya. Mm -hmm. But unless you're profitably growing, people are not going to like it very long because it's really not going to be a a vehicle for, for investing or a retirement. And so what happened in ours, it was literally to the point where people were getting 20% of their income in stock and the stock was going up 40% every year. And it did that for a lot of years, for quite a number of years. And so it was getting to be a very, very, very big asset for a lot of people. But that's what drove it was profitable growth. But it also matures it because what happens, it can get, there, there is such a thing kind of as, too good a little bit, I guess, where, whereby um, what happens next, right? And so that seeing on the horizon that we're going to have to buy out a lot of shareholders, including myself at some point, um, and we knew it would be, you know, there was, they were going to, whoever would, were, to acqu- were to acquire us is going to require that leadership to stay on and be a part of that transformation or transition, whatever term you want to call it. And the employees would want that too. The community would want that because our headquarters, we employ about 350 people and they're really good jobs in our corporate offices on I-94 there in St. Cloud. And so in order to make that all work, you know, it was going to require some of us to, you know, to hang around for a while. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I was in my mid fifties at that time and, um, which you can do the math now. <laughs> and so, um, but that, but that meant we were going to, we we're going to have to do some work. And, and so then we transitioned that ownership to Norwest Equity Partners in 2015. We had a lot of interest in the company. We and did you pick who you wanted your owner to be? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. And, and the, the beauty of a, a well-run company or a, a growth company, or in this case, a successful employee-owned company is that you have options, you know, and um, and so we picked Norwest Equity Partners because, frankly, um, we thought that was the best fit for us. They're a Twin Cities company located here in the IDS Tower. Um, they had a, a competent um, deal team, we'll call it, and um, and so to this to today, you know, we have a board and um, made up of some of our NEP partners as well as several of my team members and. Um, we collaborate on running the business. That's the governance on it. But we also, when you when you have other investors, outside investors, you know, you have an accountability there too. And so, so I do have a boss. And um, how does that feel? I mean, you were sort of interviewing yeah, your boss. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, we were having done a lot of acquisitions. We get what it looks like to be a good acquired company. In other words, we kind of knew what, what, what we should be doing in mm-hmm. order to be an effective acquisition for them. So kind of the reverse, we're just on the other side of the table. Yeah. And so I went in with the mindset that, you know, we are going to be a good uh, acquisition for them. We are going to, we were, we we're going to be a, you know, we're going to make the integration smooth. And so a lot of those things we learned from experience. So one thing about being an acquisition company yourself, um, you, you knew kind of what good looked like. And mm-hmm. so we did, we, we did collaborate. The other thing that's interesting, as an acquisition company now, they're an acquisition company too. So now you got to, how does that work when you go buy companies together? Yeah. Right? And so to kind of keep other, out of each other's way, yet be, be mindful of the strengths of the organization, you know, kind of figured that out as we went forward. And, um, and so we continue to be an acquisition company today. And Do you have to think that at some point they're going to want to sell you? Well, you know what happens on that? I mean, I think anybody that understands how, you know, investments work and, and private equity works, you know, not all private equity firms are the same. 
You know, that's and, and the one that we've been partnered with has been a good one. And um, and so at some point that will happen. I'm certain of that. Um, but we as an organization, if we do our job right and you think about it this way, because I get asked that question a lot. That's a good question is um, if you have a really, really good asset. I own a 1969 Mustang Mach 1. It's mm. a really nice one. Okay. Cool. I restored it when I got it, right? Now, when and if, which I don't intend to sell, but if I was going to sell that asset, if somebody bought that, would they put snow tires on it and drive it in the winter? Would they, you know, take the windshields out and put in roll bars and make it a demolition derby car? Um, or may they trailer it and take it to car shows and take care of it, right? Maybe make it better than it is, but enjoy it, right? And be proud of it. So the point I'm making on that, when I got it, it came on a trailer. Mm -hmm. It needed to new everything, you know, an overhaul, if you will, mm -hmm. a turnaround. And so if we take good care of this asset, which we do, when that changes hands, what is the next group going to do? It would be not a good move probably to dismantle it, right? Right. So our job, if we do our job right, is to make sure that we take good care of that asset. So when that asset transitions, whoever were to acquire that would do the same thing. That's how it kind of works if you, th if you think about it. Sure. You don't want to be a turnaround scenario. That's probably not a good thing. Right, exactly. So what drives you today besides that Mustang? What, 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 what? I drive that. It doesn't drive me. <laughs> what, what gets you excited? What is your focus as CEO of this continually growing enterprise? Well, I think, uh, I think a, as any leader, if you do your job right, you can you 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 can go through your career, you can grow a business, you can do it profitably. But really, you have an incomplete report card until you finish the job. And the job to me is I'm 61 years old, is to stay contemporary and be contributing during all the time that I'm here, and then properly transition the company to the next leader. And that motivates me because I have a lot of friends. I have family. Um, this company is part of our community. It's part of our state, really. It's a really, we're a good employer. And so um, it, it's really important to me that when my report card is actually done, that it's not an incomplete. And I get a good grade for that. And so it motivates me to... Um, a lot of the people have been with me in this company for decades, right? We've worked together. But just because you've been here a long time doesn't mean that you're equipped for the for the future, right? It just means you've been here a long time, and we've done a good job together. So as we as we position the company for the next generation of leadership, I think we've been doing a really good job on that. If you were to visit our company, and you know a little bit about our company, yep. you would find that the the demographics are well covered. the um, The strategy is is clear, and um, that that that's what motivates me is to make sure that that. As a part of the community long term, um, that I can drive by a 94 and go, yeah, you know, that was a really good ride. But look what they're doing now, you right. know, in a good way. You recently brought on a president. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that you thinking about uh, finalizing that report card? <laughs> <laughs> good question. You know, well, so, so if, again, if you're doing your job right in any any leadership position, it doesn't matter if you're at a university or a nonprofit or a for-profit, you know, the proverbial hit by the bus term that gets used from time to time, you should always have a plan in place. And 
as we're growing our business, because we're, you know, we have these 60-ish locations around multiple states, um, but we have a lot of work to do yet. You know, we're in 11 states or 12 now, I guess. And, um, and so we got a ways to go there. Um, so bringing additional leadership skills and experiences to the table is one of them. Um, positioning for uh, succession someday is another one. And if things go as planned, yeah, that should be, that should be a byproduct of that. You but, still enjoy going to work every day? Yeah, I like my job. I, um, I have, um, you know, that's something that you'll miss someday. If you, if you, if you did it right, um, we spend a lot of time at work, mm-hmm. right? And so if you're going to spend a lot of time someplace, you, you might as well make it fun. And not fun in that you're skipping around the office all day, but make it enjoyable. Not unfun, right? And so we've worked really hard in this culture piece. And you have a choice as a CEO and as a leader. You can have, you know, you, you've got flexibility in how you want to run the business. You know, I came up through the sales ring, so I enjoy the customer aspect. I enjoy the inter- interaction with the employees. I enjoy it with our vendors. I, you know, I, I like that stuff, right? Um, and remember I mentioned you only have so many skills, right? Those mm-hmm. I just named my three probably. <laughs> but, but I know how to count, right? And you need to do that on the finance side of the business. You need to have some element of operational excellence and, and, and we rely on people to do that that, are, that like that part of it. We use lean as our continuous improvement discipline. And you've got, um, you know, you've got a lot of other aspects of the business. But I'm kind of more of a front-end sales-type guy. And mm-hmm. that is, for me, that's a fun place to hang out. Mm-hmm. So it's knowing what your skills are and then finding the people you need yeah. to do the other things? You know, it, it, again, it kind of oversimplifies things, but it really is true. You know, if self-awareness is a, an asset or a detriment to most leaders, right? And so if they know themselves really, really well, most people don't, by the way, not publicly, but... If they know yourself really, really well, that means you know what you're good at mm-hmm. and you know, you know what you're not good at. You know what you like, you know what you don't like. And so I think pretty early on I recognized where I could bring value to the organization. And so it was front-end loaded. I'm, I'm a good sales guy. I'm pretty good at execution and pretty innovative. That That's kind of my three things. And I know how to count, like I said, but I'm not an accountant. And we have people that really, really are good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, operations and good processes. Um, as a salesperson, I'm probably not as compliant as I should be, but I'm smart enough to know that somebody needs to be. And so we have a vice president of operations that's very capable and confident and does that when yeah. it comes to leading our service. you know. So the point is, you, you, you need to know your strengths, recognize your weaknesses, play to your strengths, and augment those weaknesses with people better than yourself. And that's where that's where the breakdown happens often. Right. We talk to a lot of people on this podcast who are starting new ventures, who are, you know, just kind of growing and maybe at that point where they have to stop thinking like a founder and start thinking like a CEO. What's your best advice? Yeah, that's that's a, that's always that's that's transformational. That's kind of like an inflection point a little bit, meaning you kind of have to start over and you either have to recognize cuz some people, you know, Bill Gates ran his company for a long time and Steve Jobs a couple times and <laughs> and Zuckerberg from Facebook has chosen to run his and and they seem to do a pretty good job at it, but that's not for everybody, right? Um and so I I think that the entrepreneur depending on how they enter the company um Sometimes it can be an engineer, maybe somebody with less presence and are not as apt 
to be able to drive business, which is an important part of the business equation about mm-hmm. growth. You know, mm-hmm. you have to be able to drive business, business development, sales, call it what you want until you sell something, not much else happens, right? So you need to recognize what, what are my skill sets on that? And if an entrepreneur is a strong sales personality, um, I think that's great. They could, they, they can drive sales and, but they need to make sure then that they have a strong accounting, uh, partner or a strong operational partner, a strong service partner, a discipline, right? And so I think that for, Entrepreneurs that do startups, they're again t- too often, and I buy a lot of companies, and I see some that have been around for 25 years and they're $3 million, right? Mm-hmm. How did you do that? Well, the reason they do that is they keep their thumb on everything. They don't, they don't recognize their strengths and play to them. They don't recognize there's somebody that can do better than that. And you know what? Probably build a lifestyle business and that's just fine. But if people want to grow, and they want to expand, and they want to get bigger, and they want to do it profitably, you need to give up control to get control. You need to give up control of all duties and responsibilities to others that are better than you. That will give you control over your growth. That is tough to do and really valuable advice. Uh, and it's yeah. true. I mean, you actually you do actually have to do that. Yeah. Really hard to do. Most entrepreneurs... Because they, they got used to bootstrapping everything. So you right. want to keep your thumb on finances. You want to keep your thumb on investments. You want to be, maybe if you're an engineer, you want to do a lot in the development work for whatever application you're doing, but you forget about you actually have to sell it. So it's really hard to, to see peripherally inside yeah. your organization. Yeah, well, good. Something something to work towards. Yeah. Um, Jeff, before we let you go, what do you think work and the workplace is going to look like in another decade? Well, you know, it is interesting. You know, I've, I've kind of heard enough about the millennials, and I have millennial kids, and we have a lot of employees. I mentioned that we welcome the millennials into our organization. We love the young people and what they bring to it, right? So, you know, we, we, I think that there's the physical look probably will be, I, it just feels more casual. You know, if you look out five or ten more years, and I don't know, if, I can't remember how far you said to look out. But if you look out five or ten years. Either one's fine. Yeah. And so we used to be when in the 80s, Ronald Reagan was on office and IBM was a you know an up and coming company while they were very prevalent back then. We all wore suits, dark suits, white ties, some version of a red um, uh, let's see, white shirts, red ties, blue suit, mm-hmm. some form of wingtips, right? And you don't have to look too far to see what's in the wardrobe of the worker today or when you go to what used to be the the clothing store of choice for executives looks different today. Right. They got sport jackets, not necessarily as many ties. They've got kind of cool funky shoes i like shoes. yes and cool um, sneakers right and socks and you just it just <laughs> looks different right yeah and i think i think those of us that have been around for a while go this feels pretty good right and if you're if you're adapting to the change as an executive you should be seeing that around you that people are more casual and so i think that the workplace can be more casual i think the tools because this will be interesting to see how this plays out the tools that we use today um are pretty you know, you, you don't really have to be in an office. But, but coming to a workplace, even the young people seem to like that. They like the culture, too. Mm-hmm. You know, working from home is fine for some people, but a lot of the people that like to drive sales or, or be, um, you know, part of a culture and, 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 and make work more than just work— you know, I think there's an accountability, too. I think having a place to go is important. I think there'll always be a place to go. It just feels like it. Yeah. Um, even, like I said, the youngest 
you know, our youngest team members enjoy coming in work. I believe they do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that I think the other thing is is that what'll be interesting is so much of what we can do today as a consumer, we can do ourselves. You know, you look at like you can. It's easier to schedule today. We have digital calendars. You can take everywhere. You go. I mean, the days of a remember it wasn't didn't seem that long ago. There was dictation equipment, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that you don't. I mean, who does that anymore? No. Not not too many professions. Some still do. Um, so I think the tools that we have have gotten intuitive. They're they're pretty easy to use. I mean, we take them with us everywhere. So it's it's changing the types of jobs. Um, I think people will still talk on some version of a phone between each other. I mean, I mean, it's still going to be a phone probably. Yeah. Might, I think I'll even call it that probably. Um, I think people will still have some, you know, data uh, input and retrieval. There's just going to be more of it. Um, the device might look different. And I think that, um, you know, I think the um, the way we deliver the services will be different. Probably be more remote. It used to be physically. If you did something, you know, you, you can already see, they talk about drones with Amazon. I mean, the post office delivers on Sunday packages now. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, there's a lot of things that are, that are becoming the, just the way it is. And it, it started out to be like, you know, when technologies first start, you know, it's kind of like it's new. But now it just feels like it's, it's a better way to do commerce. And so... Still a place for Marco. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I feel when I look out the windshield, we really real-time don't need any more products or services. So we need to continue to execute on our, our growth strategy, the technologies that we, that we already deliver, uh, continue to expand the relationship with the customer. It's kind of an interesting thing. We, we own this large copier print company and this large IT company, and only about 15% of our customers buy both categories from us. That's hmm. opportunity. Wow. We have 36,000 customers. You know, that's opportunity for organic growth. So I think that um, I, I, when I look out the windshield, I like what I see. When I look in the rearview mirror, um, you know, that, that was a really, really good track record we got going. But um, I don't lose any sleep at night thinking about that, you know, where our business model is going. It's yeah. strong. That's great. Jeff, thank you so much for sharing your insights and everything you've learned along the way. It's quite a quite a ride. Stick around. We're going to go back to the classroom next with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Jeff, I just have to ask, do you still have a typewriter? Do you hold on to it? <laughs> you know, I probably should get one just for display purposes. <laughs> I like nostalgia. I, uh, yes, that's good. Got to have nostalgia, too. Got to see where we were. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Allison. It was a pleasure. So many great takeaways listening to Jeff Gao talk about leadership and the way he has transformed a company when you think about being a a typewriter sales company to where Marco is today. But what really stood out to me is this idea of adaptability. And I'm, I'm curious what the academic take on that is. So let's go back to the classroom with the Schultz Professor of Entrepreneurship at the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, Professor David Deeds. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. I'm or, well, like virtually. <laughs> That's right. We we make it work. So so tell us what what did you take away from listening to Jeff talk about where the company has gone in thirty five plus years? Well, this this took me back because I was I was in the, the personal computer business and and things back at the time he's talking about in the early eighties and and on through. Um, and it is that he took a company. It clearly has a, a core competence, a core capability around sales, 
customer relationship management and sales and, and really, you know, providing outcomes for the customers and was able to continually adapt what the service was and what the business model was that they were providing. They kept their eyes on that original, on that original uh, model for typewriters and copiers where you provided a, a, a service package and you had a, and you had, and you had sustainable continuous ongoing revenues from each customer. But then they just kept their eyes out and kept watching what was coming and moved early, not too early, but early so that they were able to begin providing. As the customers started thinking about needing something or hearing about something, they were ready to provide it as they started learning about it. And so that flexibility is really impressive. Right. It, it seems to speak to the need to, whatever your product is, to have a mission that's bigger than that product because you just don't know where the world is heading and who would have thought that, you know, typewriters would become obsolete. But it And you'd think that perhaps this company would have gone out of business, but they kept adapting. Mm-hmm. Well, and you notice how he talked about himself, knowing his skills and his capabilities and what he's good at and what he's not. Um, it's a company that, with that leadership, not only did he know what he was good at, but that leadership team knew what that company was good at and kept reinforcing both the culture and the sales capabilities and that skill set and just kept looking for ways to apply it. And so that is, you know, and as long as you've got that core set of capabilities that have various ways of being applied and you stay in front, um, it, you maintain your competitive advantage. You maintain your growth. You maintain your profitability. Is that something that you teach in your classes, Professor Deeds? Baseline strategy, absolutely the case. You always begin from, you know, analyze your market, understand what's going on, keep scanning the environment, and know what your core capabilities are and keep developing and building on them. That's that's how you win. That's how you sustain competitive advantage. That's how you be, move from a whatever we he was we talked about it to begin with a, an eight million dollar company to a four hundred million dollar company. Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Professor Deeds. Thanks for the perspective, and thank you to our sponsor, the University of Saint Thomas Opus College of Business. If you like the show, and we sure hope you do, take a minute to subscribe and rate and review us. It really helps the show. Thank you for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Benita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means. Bye.